Welcome to Conservative Solutions to Liberal Problems with Colin Hanna, President of Let Freedom Ring USA, offering reasonable and rational answers for the most important pressing questions of our day. Now here's Colin Hanna. Welcome to Conservative Solutions to Liberal Problems. I'm your host, Colin Hanna, from Let Freedom Ring. And Let Freedom Ring's website is letfreedomringusa.com. Today, I'm pleased to have as our guest Tom Hogan, who is the district attorney for Chester County, uh, a county that has been in the forefront of a number of innovations with regard to uh, just general uh, law enforcement and crime control, but in particular, uh, the opiate issue that has been so ravaging uh, our entire nation. Tom, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Colin. Always good to talk with you. Well, thank you. So uh, before we get into the details that we'll talk about today, uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd give our listeners a little background on yourself. How did you come to be DA? What did you do beforehand? What drew you into uh, this particular line of, of legal work? And your own view of the crime uh, challenges that the DA's office in Chester County faces. Sure. And I guess let's really start back at the beginning. Uh, I came from a, a Born big at the family. young age, were you? <laughs> <laughs> it was a cold, dark, stormy night. Uh, came from a big family. Six kids in my family. Um, I uh, have an older sister, then I've got three younger brothers, and then I've got a baby sister who's 17 years younger than me. Oh. Uh, so it's a grew big family. I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, I was born when my parents were still in school. We always joke that my sister and I, my oldest sister and I, grew up in a poor family. My next uh, three brothers grew up in a middle-class family, and my baby sister grew up as the rich, spoiled, only child of, uh, of my doting parents. It sounds to me like an American dream. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, after growing up in Green Bay, I went to Dartmouth uh, for college and then uh, the University as, of Virginia a, for law school. As a Penn graduate, I'm sorry to hear that you went to Dartmouth, but I understand that they have, uh, they have pretty good operation up there. Uh, we do. It's a small school, but there are those who love it. <laughs> and then from, uh, from UVA, I came out. I was one of those kids who came out with a million dollars in debt. Uh, knowing I would have to go to work right away and went to work for Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, one of the biggest firms sure. in the world in Philadelphia. Great firm. And did complex litigation and white-collar criminal defense. They were just starting their practice from Morgan, and I was there for six years. Met my wife there. She was the attorney in the office next to me. Mm. Uh, but but uh, from there, I told Morgan when they interviewed me that I was going to leave someday to be a prosecutor that that was what my career was going to be. And the folks from Morgan actually were always supportive of that. They always said, look, you're turning down millions of dollars yeah. um, to stay at this firm, uh, but we understand if your heart is with being a prosecutor, we will always support you. Um, so, so I left. So help us understand what, that, what drove you to that. It, you, you go into a very prestigious firm where lots of, of opportunities are in front of you. And you've got a heart of a prosecutor. You start out doing defense, and yet you've got the heart of a prosecutor. Where did that come from? I think that comes from your family. Um, it certainly came from mine. Uh, when I think of criminals, I think of them really as bullies. Um, they're just grown-up bullies, um, whether they're assaulting never people. never grown-up bullies. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of that. Uh, whether they're assaulting people, whether they're tearing apart their communities, they are people who pick on the vulnerable. 
Um, and I was raised very strongly with a stop the bully, uh, don't let the bully hurt other people type of mentality. Um, and it's a little strange because I was never bullied growing up, uh, but I've always had that I'll step in and take care of this bully for you sort of mentality. Uh, so to me, being a prosecutor is I am going to protect this victim. I am going to get the bad guy, and I'm going to make sure that this bad guy doesn't hurt anybody else. That's really the heart of what a prosecutor does day after day. Well, you've put it in very idealistic terms, and I think that's, that's wonderful and inspirational. So um, how did you wind up making that transition from Morgan Lewis and Bacchius to your first prosecutor's job? Well, I actually interviewed with all of the prosecutor's offices around the Philadelphia area. My wife at that point had become general counsel for a very big international firm, which was located in Chester County. Um, so when I interviewed with all the DA's offices, it was more or less blind luck that she happened to be on the far edge of Chester County in Wayne. And when I interviewed with the Chester County DA's office, we looked around and said, Chester County looks like a great place to start a family, to build a life. Why don't I go to the Chester County DA's office? And that was just sheer good luck. And Anthony Sarcione was the DA, and Anthony turned out to be, now Judge Sarcione, to be a great mentor. He was a fabulous trial lawyer, and he was somebody who you could say, I'm thinking about doing this in a trial, and Anthony could tell you how that might work, how it might blow up in your face, how to tweak it a little bit so that you would make it better and make sure that you did the best thing possible. And the year for that was? 1998. Great. So. Okay. So fast forward from there to now. What, what, what did you do in the DA's office on your way to becoming the district attorney? Well, a lot happened between uh, here and there. Um, in the DA's office, first thing that happened was the cops really adopted me. Um, I had a couple of big trials right off the bat, and the cops loved the trials, loved the fact we convicted the guys that a lot of times wouldn't even have gone to trial. And they started showing me their job, their life. They would take me on ride-alongs. They'd take me on search warrants. They trained me with their SWAT teams. They taught me how to shoot. Um, so they did all the things to show me what happens when a cop is on the street, um, which really helps a prosecutor tremendously when you're explaining to a jury what happened, when you've actually been out there with police officers and seen what happens when police have to respond to a scene. Now, our listeners can't see you, of course, but you do kind of look like a cop. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're trim. You've got a, a clean-cut, shaven head and all of that sort of stuff. And, and you really do project, I think, the most positive possible image of law enforcement. Well, even, even when I was a defense lawyer, I remember sitting in the Fourth Circuit and going in to argue a, a case for the defense in the Fourth Circuit. And I sat down at the defense table, and the court staff came up to me and said, Sir... The prosecutor sits at the other table. <laughs> I had to tell him I'm here for the defense, but I always seek the truth, folks. I'm going to be going at it the same way. Not only is that a great line, but it also conveys a certain sense of destiny. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so in the DA's office, I got to try a ton of cases. I got to work with police all across Chester County. And then shortly after 9-11, and I, I watched 9-11 unfold from the DA's office, um, I came in. The TV was on. We heard about the first plane hitting. Everyone was wondering what, what had happened. And then as we were all sitting there watching, the second came, plane came in and hit the tower. And when it did, I stood up and said, this is terrorism, and went up to my courtroom to take care of the rest of the day. Um, but shortly after that, 
Pat Meehan uh, was selected as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And just a couple months after that, um, I was called in and, and after interviewing with the U.S. Attorney's Office, was asked if I wanted to become a federal prosecutor and fight crime across the United States. So I went down with Pat, uh, with U.S. Attorney Meehan, and became a federal prosecutor. Now I did nationwide investigations, uh, everything from big drug crime to big fraud to terrorism. Um, and the things that you're seeing today, the lone wolf terrorists and people being radicalized, we were doing that 10, 15 years ago. Um, but Pat's approach to it and Maine Justice's approach back then was take these guys apart before they strike. Hit them, take them down with gun charges, take them down with drug charges, don't let them hit. And it was very stressful because the motto for our Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI was, if we succeed, you'll never know who we were. Yeah. If we fail, you'll never forget our names. Um, so our job every day was to make sure that these terror attacks didn't hit. Now, somewhere along the line, my wife and I managed to have two kids. <laughs> um, and at some point, my wife sat me down, and she was still traveling all over the world for her job. And she said, look, you're never home. You, get, you leave in the morning at 6 o'clock before anybody's up to get the train into Philly. You travel all over the place for all these terrorism cases and these other cases. And the FBI drops you off at 2.30 in the morning, and everyone's already in bed. You sleep for a few hours, and then you get back up and you disappear again. Your children are going to be gone before you know it. You need to take a break from being a prosecutor and come home. So Good for her. I, Good for her. I said what I always say to my wife, which is, yes, yes ma'am. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. All right. Not yes, dear, but yes, ma'am. All right. The, there's a All reason right. she's called she who must be obeyed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and I came back to Chester County and went to a private law firm uh, to Lamacker Lane and was there for four or five years and did municipal law and, and criminal defense again, but I was home for my family. You know, I could leave at 8 o'clock in the morning and I could come home at 5.30 at night and be there for my children. But within your heart still beats the, within your chest beats the heart of a prosecutor. Everybody knew I would come back someday. Uh, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, the last thing I said was, someday you may need a superhero again. Put the bat signal up and I'll right? be back. So where do you put your cape anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that, that, that you were drawn back into public service in particular and into the DA's office. So help our listeners who are outside of Chester County get an understanding for what the Chester County DA's office covers today. What percentage of your activities, for instance, involve some kind of support of federal efforts with regard to terrorism, but more uh, commonly, what is the situation with regard to drug crime, other forms of petty crime, burglary, larceny, all of the things that the DA's office uh, is involved with? We want to go on and talk about the opioid crisis, but I really want our listeners to get a sense for what part it plays in the full spectrum of the work of the DA's office in Chester County. Sure. And the Chester County DA's office, the people have to understand, folks, what Chester County is. Chester County is the fastest growing, wealthiest, best educated, healthiest county in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have somewhat more than 500,000 people here, and we go everywhere from in the eastern edge of the county. We have big pharma, big tech, and big finance, um, and that's the western main line. 
you get down south and you have the, the hunt country um, and the big mushroom farms. You get out west and the north and you still have very rural areas. And then we've got these fabulous small municipalities. Westchester, Kennett Square, Phoenixville, great places to live. Um, so Chester County, we are the land of Oz. We are the greatest place to live in Pennsylvania. Tom, I'm going to need to interrupt you to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the, the law enforcement situation in Chester County. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Tom Hogan, Chester County District Attorney. You're listening to Conservative Solutions to Liberal Problems. Here again is Colin Hanna. We're back with Tom Hogan, Chester County District Attorney. Tom, just before the break, you were giving a kind of a uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, overview of Chester County. Now let's look at the dark underside. What are the crime issues and uh, the, the main priorities of Chester County's District Attorney's Office? Sure. And, and I love Chester County, so I'm always going to say as, that Chester do County I. is the greatest county in the as world. As do I. Lifelong Chester uh, County. But just like any other county, um, there are serious crime problems. And as we've gone from a county of 150,000 people that was all, almost all rural to a county that covers absolutely everything, we have encountered all those crime problems. And we have everything from big financial crimes to uh, we have drug DTOs, which are drug trafficking organizations that are tied in directly to Mexico operating in the county. Um, we have violent crime. Um, our, we average between eight to 10 homicides a year. Um, you have your armed robberies, you have gun crimes. Um, so we have a bit of everything. Um, the Chester County model is a very strong centralized model, although we have 46 police departments. Within the DA's office, all major cases are handled by prosecutors working with the police um, so that they have a, and that's the federal model of investigation, so you have prosecutors working hand in hand with the police right from the beginning of an investigation. Not many counties have the resources to do that. We do and it gives us a much better product by the time we're at the end of an investigation and going to trial. And our police are fabulous. Um, and then we have our Chester County detectives. Most of your average uh, civilians don't realize that the DA's offices have detectives who are part of the DA's office, who are our investigative arm. And they work hand in glove with our prosecutors, uh, taking on everything. Another area that's really exploded is child abuse. And child abuse has taken off as the reporting <coughs> requirements post-Sandusky mm. have taken off. Mm. But the one thing that has caught all of our eyes these days is the opioid epidemic and how it is affecting everyone across Pennsylvania, across the United States. Uh, we recently finished up an investigation that we called Operation Wildfire, um, where we wanted to show everybody a snapshot in time over eight weeks how much heroin and opioids were available throughout Chester County. And it was a grim look at, even in the wealthiest county in Pennsylvania, exactly what a large problem this is. And you arrested something like 43 people in that bust, is that yeah, correct? 46 individuals. Sorry to were, understate it. 46 <laughs> individuals were arrested um, for dealing heroin or opioids. And, I mean, in addition to the heroin and the Oxycontin, these folks were supplying us with everything we wanted. So they were, the main things they were selling were heroin and opioids, but they were also selling us on the side crystal meth and crack cocaine and Suboxone and everything else you can think of because they're a full-service pharmacy. They lure you in with the heroin and the opioids, but they'll take care of your other needs as well. 
that's uh, grim the way you put it in those uh, sarcastic terms. Um, what percentage of the drug problem in Chester County today would you say is related to heroin and other opioids as opposed to the other drugs like crystal meth or at the low end uh, illegal use of marijuana and so on? What percentage of the problem is, is opioid related? Well, let's frame it largely first because sometimes the public doesn't realize the impact of drugs overall. Probably 80% of crime in Chester County is tied to drugs. One way or another. People. So you're talking drug dealers, you're talking drug users. If your car has been broken into, right. it's probably a drug addict who is stealing things from your car. If your house has been broken into and burglarized, um, if you've been subject to a mugging, um, most of our murders are related to drugs. So drugs have a profound impact at almost all level uh, of crime. Now within the drug crimes themselves, um, the level of heroin and opioids now are permeating all of those crimes. So at this point, we're probably talking 50 to 60% of the crime that is affected by drugs is caused directly by opioids. One of the uh, scourges that many people don't realize, particularly in rural areas, uh, is the impact of crystal meth. How significant a problem is that in Chester County? Less than in, in areas like West Virginia and so on? Well, it's interesting. Uh, one of the biggest investigations I did in the U.S. Attorney's Office was when crystal meth was threatening to overrun southeastern Pennsylvania, and it was pure Mexican crystal meth. Um, we actually had some shipments that were 100% pure. Um, DEA had never seen anything hmm. that pure before. This is, this is better than breaking bad crystal meth. Um, so we actually managed to really clamp down um, in the early 2000s on the whole crystal meth trade that coming up from Mexico into Philadelphia. And we got word from all along the border states in the U.S. that this was Operation Crushed Ice, that the word all along the border was, don't ship to Philly. Um, you're going to get busted, and all of your drugs are going to disappear, and your money's going to go. Um, so under Pat Meehan's leadership, we actually did a pretty good job of shutting it down. But the other thing that has always protected us from crystal meth is the fact that Philadelphia has the purest, cheapest heroin in the United States. How, do, how does that come about? You know, there's never been a good explanation for that. I've sat down with DEA, and we've talked about it and gone back through the history of it, and we've never heard a perfect explanation. The best theory I have ever heard is that when heroin was moving in in the 70s as a result of the Vietnam War, you began to see a lot of heroin coming into the United States. Bringing it back after being exposed in Vietnam exactly. for soldiers. Uh, yeah. Because back then, Southeast Asia was the main source of heroin. Um, but during that time, the, uh, the organized crime had already tied into drugs um, and had already established themselves in New York. And the heroin dealers um, realized that they couldn't push themselves into New York where they wanted to be. So the best explanation we heard for why they set up shop in Philadelphia was it was your closest, biggest city to New York. And back then, Philadelphia was the fourth biggest city in the United States. Now we're the sixth biggest city in the United States. Um, but they set it up as an alternative to New York. And then historically, they just never moved. So even as recently as last month, I looked at the purity of heroin and the price of heroin, and Philadelphia remains number one in the United States. That's a rank that we obviously don't want. Uh, and the origin of most of that? 
Well, in the 70s, it was Southeast Asia. Um, and then when heroin again exploded in the 90s, um, it was coming up from Central America um, and South America. Um, and then... Colombia in what's, particular, right? Yes. Um, and, but even when it was coming up from Colombia, it was being handled by the Mexican drug trafficking organizations mm-hmm. to ship into the United States because they controlled all the ports of entry. Now, since then, um, the Mexicans have figured out how to make pure white Colombian-grade heroin on their own. Um, so now they control everything top to bottom. That just happened in the last two or three years that working together with DEA, we were finally able to track and see that the Mexican drug trafficking organizations had managed to produce pure white heroin and were selling it directly with their established distribution lines for cocaine, for meth, and for marijuana. What's the exact distribution channel by which it enters the U.S.? Um, you have, and depending on any points of time, you have between four and six um, of the major Mexican drug trafficking organizations. Um, those four to six DTOs, and sometimes they fold in on each other. Sometimes one will get annihilated by the other, but it's always between four and six. Um, but say, you know, right now there are currently six operating. Those six each control one of the ports of entry along the border, and at that port of entry, they are smuggling in all of their drugs. But help us understand. I mean, it's fascinating when you say control a port of entry. Uh, the average American citizen, I think, believes that uh, the United States government, through its border patrol, controls the port of entry. How it is, what kind of control does a drug trafficking organization exert on the port of entry, whether it's it's a, a, a seaport or a, or a, a truck terminal port or, or what? How do they get it in so, reliably? Sure. And let's take one specific example. You've got Juarez um, on one side in Mexico, and just over the border, you have El Paso um, in Texas. Um, and so they are directly linked, and the drug trafficking organization that controls Juarez, um, which, by the way, is a terrible place, chock full of murders. They murder police officers. They murder judges with impunity. Um, it's a lawless state. Um, but their job is to move the drugs from, El Pas- from Juarez into El Paso and then out. Um, yeah. Now, how do they do that? They used to do it um, through major shipments. They used to move 500 kilos at a time. Um, but they realized our Border Patrol got wise to that and would figure out how to pick off 500 kilos. Now, 500 kilos, you lose that. That's a lot of money. Um, a kilo of Coke these days is going for $35,000 in the United States. You lose 500 of them, somebody's going to be mad. So what they do now is they move them in in smaller batches through mules, um, and they'll move them in. Now, when you say mules, you don't mean literal four-legged mules. No, I don't mean so, burrows. Right, right. <laughs> I mean human yeah. mules. Um, and they are going to bring them in, and they will have them hidden in cars, um, trucks, um, in tr- what are called traps, which are hidden within the cars themselves, the vehicles themselves. It could be hollow seats or, or truck bed uh, below the truck bed or something like that. Exactly. In the frame of the vehicle yeah. itself, there'll be a, a hidden compartment that can take between 20 and 50 kilos uh, of whether it's cocaine, meth, or heroin. Um, and then they will send fleets of people through um, in those cars. And they'll realize some of them will get picked off, but the majority of them will get through. They play the numbers. They do. Um, they're businessmen. Sure. Um, 
And then you've got more sophisticated operations that will do things like dig tunnels, um, use a submarine, right. um, use a plane. You will have all of that. They are good. They know what they're doing, and we have to fight every day to try to cut them off. All right, Tom, we've now defined the problem. We're going to need to take another break, and on the other side of it, we're going to start to look at what kinds of solutions you have uh, come up with here in Chester County. To connect with our hosts, log on to LetFreedomRingUSA.com. That's LetFreedomRingUSA.com. Now, more conservative solutions to liberal problems. Here's Colin Hanna. We're back with Chester County District Attorney Tom Hogan. Tom, you've just uh, described the system by which heroin in particular, but other drugs, enter the U.S., largely through Mexico, through these ports of entry controlled by drug trafficking organizations. Once they are through the border, uh, how do they get into places like Chester County? How do you find them, and what ways of interdicting them and, and making arrests have you found uh, work most effectively? We'll deal with the whole matter of treatment of those who are addicted later. It's, if anything, perhaps more important than the, uh, than the interdiction. But let's, let's keep our focus on uh, the actual physical trafficking. Sure, and let's, let's talk about really two ways that, uh, that heroin and then opioids get into Chester County. The first one is the Mexican drug trafficking organizations. They've now got it over the border from Mexico into the United States. How it's going to get up to Chester County is it's going to come up the 95 corridor. That is a huge drug pipeline. It is going to go into basically hub cities. Um, think of it just like an airline. You're going to have hub cities like Charlotte um, that are going to receive bulk shipments, and then it's going to go right up 95. When you are on 95, anywhere between Boston and D.C., if you look around you, about 10% of the cars are involved in the drug trade somehow. Good either, night. Are you serious? 10%? They're either, 10%. Moving, they're either moving drugs north or they're moving money south. Um, and if you're ever with law enforcement and you're wandering along, you can actually have them point out to you and say, yeah, that car is probably carrying drugs. That one may be carrying money. Um, so that whole 95 corridor is a huge drug corridor. I spend a lot of time on 95. Help me uh, become a, a more observant uh, driver, one who's equipped with some of the tools to, uh, to pick out uh, the telltale signs of, of a drug-carrying car. Sure. We're looking for rental cars. We're looking for rental cars from out of state. You're looking for uh, two people in the car. Um, and because drug dealers do not trust one person at a time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then we have a whole bunch of other telltale signs that I can't tell you about because they are part of our interdiction efforts and how we catch these guys. Uh, but I, I kind of expected that. <laughs> <laughs> so as they come up 95, they're getting into Chester County one of two ways. First, in southern Chester County, um, where you have a large... Um, migrant Mexican population, 95% of that population is law-abiding, hardworking, um, exactly the type of citizens we want yes, yes. in Chester County. However, salted it among there, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations have put their workers, and their workers will work in the mushroom houses and other places, factories, during the day, and at night, they are part of the transshipment hub of moving major amounts of drugs up the 95 corridor up into the other cities and into Chester County. 
we took apart a drug trafficking organization that had direct ties to Mexico in southern Chester County that had been operating down there for 20 years in Operation Talarana. Um, and they, on the wire, they'd assured everybody they couldn't be caught. They had been operating forever. Uh, they were surprised as heck when we rounded up about 50 of them and took them all out. Now, how do you go from suspicion that something like that is going on to being able to identify 50 individuals and, in fact, arrest them? No, we use a combination of things like informants um, and cooperators and undercover officers, and we eventually move up into our technology and our surveillance, and then we get a court order eventually that allows us to wiretap phones. And we always are very diligent to make sure we have a court order signed and and we're crossing all our I's and dotting all our T's from a constitutional standpoint. Actually, it goes the other way. You cross the T's and dot the oh, I's. Oh, right. <laughs> crossing all the, all the T's and dotting the I's. But uh, anyway. I'm a little more careful in that when we're filing our wiretap information. That's why we have multiple people read it. Um, but once you're up on that wire, you are hearing direct communications uh, between these guys. And we always joke that they think they're clever um, and they're talking in code. Um, but well, there's, they're probably also speaking in Spanish, right? So it's, it's, it's two levels. It's, it's a different language and then code within that language. Correct. Um, and so you have to have uh, officers who can speak Spanish to intercept those calls and interpret them for you. And then you, they have to be drug officers who understand the code. Although, as I joked during one wire, when they were using the code for kilos, they were using shoes. Uh, I said, nobody needs 13 shoes unless we're out there <laughs> looking for a one-legged man somewhere. So that, the other way it gets into Chester County is it goes directly to Philadelphia up the 95 corridor and then bounces out from the Philadelphia mm. dealers into Chester County. Um, so that's how heroin gets here. But how opioids get here, how Oxycontin and Vicodin mm -hmm. and things like that, which is really what's driving the current surge, that gets here through big pharma and through doctors. Now, I recently read something about an elderly doctor who had written two million prescriptions and was finally uh, apprehended for, for overprescribing. That's clearly an extreme case. How do you identify doctors who overprescribe knowingly, and what do you do about them? Because they are absolutely part of the problem. Well, and those doctors, the, what we think of as the pill mills, mm -hmm. um, who are just churning out prescriptions, they're actually relatively easy for us to track. We can go in with DEA and check the prescriber records for what doctors are prescribing what amounts, and it's easy to tick off the top 10 overprescribers mm -hmm. in the state of Pennsylvania, which, thank goodness, we don't have any of them in, Pen in Chester County. Yeah, let's, let's point out the difference between Chester County and its opioid and heroin problem and our surrounding counties, even though we're going to be looking at some horrifying and deeply disturbing statistics today. Within the regional context, uh, Chester County is, is one of the more fortunate counties, is it not? So within the region, within southeastern Pennsylvania, Chester County ranks the lowest in terms of drug overdose deaths and, and, and this problem. And that I doesn't mean we don't have a problem, but compared to right. Philadelphia and Delaware County and places like that, our problem is much, much less. So uh, these overprescribers, uh, if they're not the ones that are so aggressively overprescribing that they uh, show up on, on prescription records easily as, as improbable, where does the rest of it come from? 
it's the regular doctors. What happened um, was... So you go to the doctor and you complain of a, of a toothache that you don't have? Uh, well, it's not just that. It is, think about when we were growing up, Colin. You got your wisdom teeth out and they, they gave you ibuprofen, told you to sit in bed for a couple of days and eat soft food and, and pack it with ice because it was going to hurt for a week. Now, when kids get their wisdom teeth out, they're given a prescription for OxyContin or Vicodin or Percocet. And you take a 17-year-old and you give them this stuff, which is essentially rocket fuel, and some of those kids never get off it. They go right from OxyContin to when they can't afford it anymore, buying it off the street or they can't get a prescription anymore, they switch over to heroin because you go from a $30 on the street pill of OxyContin to a $5 hit of heroin. Um, and the regular doctors were told in the 80s by Purdue Pharma that OxyContin and other opioids were not addictive. Oh, my goodness. And they believed it. Um, so in good faith, they but, prescribed these things. But why do they do it so easily today? I mean, you used a perfect example when you talked about uh, a wisdom tooth being removed. I had my wisdom tooth uh, teeth removed relatively recently, so I didn't have them in the 80s. I had it in the you know, 2010s, and I was indeed given a prescription for a Percocet. I filled one of them and never used it because I wanted to see if I couldn't get through the whole process using ibuprofen or Aleve or something like that. I never, I never touched it. Somewhere in my medicine cabinet somewhere, I probably have a five- or six- or seven-year-old bottle of, I forget what it is, Vicodin or Percocet or something like that. Uh, why, why the switch? Just because it is temporarily that much more effective than just over-the-counter pain medication? Well, you had why, a, why do doctors do it so readily? So Are there financial incentives that cause them to want to do that? You had a, a collision of, uh, of events. One, big pharma decided, obviously for them, it's a moneymaker to put and push these drugs out there. And it was a phenomenal moneymaker. In 1998, we had approximately, I want to say, 11 tons of OxyContin prescribed in the United States. By 2013, it was somewhere around 130 tons oh my goodness. of OxyContin. And 90% of that is in the United States. The other countries of the world don't use uh, opioids like we do. Um, but what happened is the doctors were taught this stuff is not addictive, and then they were taught that the fifth vital sign in medical school is now pain. And you have to check with your patients all the time, are you in pain and how can I stop the pain? You combine that with the fact that the medical school training on opioids, as all these doctors were coming up, consisted of over four years, they got 30 minutes of training on opioids. And that training was they're not addictive and they're good for pain, they will stop pain. So yes, in good faith, they put them out there. And as a result, they created a generation of addicts. Um, the doctors only now, in the last two or three years, are beginning to understand that when they are prescribing 30 oxys to a 17-year-old, in good faith, that they are becoming as dangerous as the pill mills. They are creating the heroin addicts that we have now. The doctors are starting to pull back, finally. They realize what they have done, and they're starting to pull back, but they are creating those heroin addicts because now people can't get their prescriptions and they are turning to the street. So for the next five to seven years, we are going to see an increase in heroin overdose deaths. 
even as we are pulling back from overprescribing opioids. You paint a grim picture indeed. Uh, we're going to need to take another break. And on the other side of the break, I want to talk with you about what you do with addicts in your community. We'll be back with more with Tom Hogan after these words. You're listening to Conservative Solutions to Liberal Problems. Here again is Colin Hanna. We're back with Chester County District Attorney Tom Hogan. Tom, over the last couple of moments, we've uh, been talking about the heroin and opioid problem and distribution, how the stuff gets into our communities. But once it's in our communities, we create or it creates a community of addicts. You were talking about how over the next five years the addiction problem within our communities is going to grow. As Chester County's elected district attorney, how do you look at this problem? How much of it is truly a law enforcement problem with law enforcement solutions, and how much of it is better addressed by treatment? I'm talking now about the addict, not about those who are involved in distribution. Uh, There's no question they, they don't need treatment. They need uh, vigorous prosecution. But when it comes to the individual addict, it may be our own children, friends, neighbors, schoolmates, what have you. What's the right way to diminish the addiction problem in our community? And, and how do you go about it here in Chester County? And, Colin, that is the $64,000 question. And that is the question that uh, everyone actually has been turning to us here in Chester County to say, how are you guys doing it? Because you're one of the few that actually seem to have some handle on this. So give us some statistical sense of what you've just outlined in, in words. Where does Chester County rank with regard to uh, addiction, solving the addiction problem, and so on? Give us, give us a sense for what makes Chester County different so that we can appreciate the exact uh, treatment methodologies and prosecution uh, concepts that, that you're uh, employing here. Sure. To give you an idea of scale, the drug overdose deaths in Chester County um, compared to southeastern Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, last year, um, 900 drug overdose deaths. And then you get into the surrounding counties, you get into Montgomery County and Delaware County and Bucks County, they're all talking around 200 drug overdose deaths, plus or minus 50 on either side. Chester County had 97. Um, so we are well below everybody. Um, now, the $64,000 question is, of course, how do you, how do you try, stop this? How do you treat this? How do you take care of this problem? Um, and the first answer from every prosecutor is, of course, as you pointed out, is we bang the dealers. We arrest them. We lock them up. And we do do that very vigorously. But that's not enough. Um, so what else do we do? Um, we were one of the people to create um, the Good Samaritan Law. The Good Samaritan Law says if you are with somebody and they're overdosing, even though you might have drugs on you, even though you might have a probation violation, stay. Call 911 because the first instinct is to run away mm-hmm. and not get caught. 911, the Good Samaritan Law creates immunity for the people who stay because we want to save these people's lives. Prescription drug drop boxes. You were talking about somewhere in your drug cabinet, you've got a prescription for Percocet and might have, you know, 20 or 30 pills left. Prescription drug drop boxes take them out of the community. We put them all around Chester County. You so take how do you these, find them? You take these, you go to our website, and we have their Which probably, is? Go ahead. Uh, just Chester County DA. 
um, and you will find it directly at our website, and it will tell you where to take these prescription drugs because what happens is if you have a child or a grandchild who's an addict, um, they will go through your medicine cabinet, and they will pull those out, and they will either sell them on the street or use them themselves. Um, so we need to get those out of circulation. Uh, we have NOPE, Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education. We go into the high schools and the middle schools, and we talk to the kids about how to avoid this problem, what the problem is. And we have parents who have lost a child to a drug overdose come in and tell their story, what it was like to walk into that bedroom and find their son or daughter dead from a heroin overdose, and they never even knew their kid was on heroin. Um, we very vigorously use our drug court. Our drug court was one of the first in the state. I remember when the drug court was instituted, because I was Chester County Commissioner at that time. Uh, talk about that in some depth, if you would, Tom, how the drug court works, how it is as one friend of mine who is a social worker and also a political science graduate said, it, the drug court is where the conservative solution to drugs of law enforcement meets the compassionate solution uh, to the drug problem of, of treatment, that they come together at the drug court. Explain how Chester County's drug court works and what your experience has been. Certainly. And as commissioner, um, you were one of the people to recognize that this is something that was going to be important going forward. And Judge Jacqueline Cody was the first judge to actually take it over and run it. And by sheer coincidence, I was one of the ADAs um, who shortly after I joined the office was assigned to her courtroom. So I was assigned to do drug court. And my first reaction was, this is a terrible idea. These are drug users. We should just lock them up and throw away the key. But Judge Cody told me, have a little patience, work through this, you will see the value of it. And what I saw was people struggling with their addiction. And drug court, um, they, the people who are in drug court sign up for it after they've been arrested for drugs um, and they admit they have an addiction and then they have to go through what is a very rigorous process. They have to go through rigorous counseling. They meet with the judge in a formal setting every week. Um, if, they are, uh, if they relapse on drugs, they are sent to jail immediately and they know exactly what the penalty is. So there's no delay between what goes wrong and what the penalty is. It's a little bit like raising a child. You can't tell them not to touch a hot stove two days after they've done it. You've got to tell them right away. Um, and at the end of this time period, whether it's one year or two years, these people are clean. But it's basically a second chance opportunity. Yes. Not a seventh chance opportunity, but a second chance opportunity. Yes. And they come out, and if they successfully make it through drug court, their charges are dismissed. Um, they have a clean record. And... Our recidivism rate for people who make it through drug court is extraordinarily low because if they can make it for a year to two years of being clean, these are people who have reached sobriety. They're going to fight it their whole lives, but they are going to go on to have a decent and productive life. And we have found that this is a much better way to treat um, these people than just locking them up. So we have probably the only prison in southeastern Pennsylvania that is below capacity. Uh, because we take a very clear look, and we tell prosecutors this all the time. When you have the really dangerous criminal, I want you to lock them up. And I don't want you to just lock them up and send them to the county. I want you to send them upstate and get them out of this county. But when you have somebody who's got a problem, when you have somebody who's got an addiction, who's got a mental health issue, 
I want you, if you can, not to send them to prison. I want you to get them help and get them treatment. And so as a result of that, we have dangerous criminals locked up, but we have people who we can help and turn back into good citizens. We have them on probation or doing a very short stint in prison to get sober or going into drug court. And we are, as you said, this is where the conservatives and the liberals meet um, because, yes, we're getting the dangerous people off the streets, but we are helping a lot of people too. And by the way, we happen to be saving a lot of money on prison costs. Not to, not to uh, give short shrift to saving a lot of lives in the process, too. Absolutely. And our goal here is to make sure that the really bad folks are not out hurting people. The folks that we can fix, we will fix, uh, because they are valuable Chester County citizens. So give us a sense for what the, the percentages are. I understand how difficult it is to be successful uh, when dealing with addiction. Uh, I've had some personal experience in, in my family and and elsewhere, uh, all addictions are notoriously difficult. Uh, heroin addiction being one of one of the most ad- uh, difficult. So, what kinds of, of numbers do you get out of the drug court uh, diversionary process? Uh, well, if you if you think about addiction, uh, you either are genetically set up for it or you're not. Uh, I've I'm an old athlete. I played basketball in college, uh, so my knees are beat up, my shoulders beat up, and I've had five, six surgeries. Um, so I have had to use Oxycontin or Percocet afterwards for short periods of time. I get off them as fast as I can, um, but there's no, for me, there's no lure of, of getting addicted. There are other people, though, who genetically are set up so that if they are exposed to it, if they take that first risk and decide to try heroin, or they get prescribed OxyContin, they can't ever fight it off. Does that mean that, help help me understand one very specific small part of this. Do some people take an initial dose that is properly prescribed and experience a different level of euphoria than someone else? Um, Is that part of what happens? Is that what happens when people become easily addicted, that they actually experience initial euphoria at a higher uh, rate or intensity than others? Yeah, the scientists can't really tell us exactly whether it's that they feel so much better or that they feel so much worse afterwards that they need to go back to it. So it's a chicken or an egg sort of thing. But what we know is those people who have a genetic predisposition towards addiction have it sort of across the board. So it's not just going to be drugs. It could be alcohol. Um, and if it's not alcohol, it could be something else. Um, so they have an addictive personality, and once you expose them to something, they're much more likely to have trouble. So how do they re- respond to treatment? Our time is growing short, but sure. uh, we're now at the most hopeful part of our interview. So and I'd, I'd really love you to, to close out our time uh, on, an, on an up note. And all addicts will tell you that they will always be an addict. The alcoholics will tell you, I will always be an alcoholic. The narcotics addiction people will say, I will always have an addiction, but I can fight it. I can fight it through a combination of counseling, through a combination of therapy. Sometimes it's drug therapy like methadone or suboxone, but it has to be controlled by working with a good doctor. And they need the support of their families. You cannot do this alone. You need to work with your families, and if you have an addict in your family, you know the pain of dealing with an addict. And you know that sometimes you've got to hold them up and sometimes you've got to tell them that 
I'm not going to support you or enable you anymore. Um, so it is a struggle for those families, but we are getting better at it. And I hope some point someday we'll have a magic silver bullet for this, but we don't. This is something that you need to work at every day if you are an addict, and if you're an addict's family, you need to work at every day strategies for them. Tom, thank you very much for dealing with a very difficult problem. I think you've enlightened a, a number of people, and uh, access to your website uh, is there for those who know people that, that need the kind of help that, uh, that you found works in Chester County. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Colin. Thanks for listening to Conservative Solutions to Liberal Problems with Colin Hanna, president of Let Freedom Ring USA, promoting constitutional government, economic freedom, and traditional values. Log on to LetFreedomRingUSA.com to learn more. That's LetFreedomRingUSA.com. Go there and learn more. Take action. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The views and opinions on the preceding show are solely those of Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring and his guests.